Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Scott Silk asked me to pass on a message to those of you who submitted stories in January. Last week, he sent out the last of the decisions to authors of whether the story was going to work for our podcast medium or if we'd have to take a pass on them. He's feeling pretty confident that we've responded to everyone who submitted, but because we had a bit of a bumpy start to our, and I'll use the word again here, deluge of submissions, he would just like to double-check to make sure that if you submitted a story in January and still haven't heard back, please let us know at talestoterrify at gmail.com and we'll get it sorted out. Just before we get on to our stories, I think that the third horror movie that I saw at the Lost Weekend Film Festival was the adaptation of M.R. Carey's The Girl with All the Gifts. I read it and I'm going to bet that a big part of our listening audience has as well. It was one of the more popular zombie books in years. I feel that it translated quite well to the big screen, and the edits to the plot, they made sense. The acting was spot on. Senia Nanua, who played Melanie, does a wonderful job, and I found it to be a very enjoyable film. Now, I do want to caution you, if you see the movie and haven't read the book, I wouldn't mind hearing from you at TalesToTerrify at gmail.com. I feel like that there might have been some places in the movie that wouldn't have made as much sense to me if I hadn't read the book. But I can't know what I don't know, right? Let's hear some stories. Greg Sturman is a London-born writer currently living in Australia and pursuing a Master of Teaching degree at the University of Tasmania. Being left alone in a darkened room as a child with a crackly recording of Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart on the stereo first turned him on to the world of horror and changed his life. 
Greg's idea of heaven is happening across a second-hand bookshop in an unfamiliar town and having the time to browse the shelves. When not reading or writing short stories in the horror, weird, and associated speculative fiction genres, he likes listening to podcasts, audiobooks, and old-time radio shows. He often does this while striving to master Photoshop so that he can create awesome art. Greg doesn't blog or tweet and hardly ever posts on Facebook. Someday he'll establish a social media presence. Meanwhile, he can be contacted in the old-school fashion via his email at redtailrooster at yahoo.co.uk. Link will be in the show notes. Now listen with me, children of the night, to Greg Sturman's The Lady of the Knife. A letter addressed to Jorge Luis Borges, August 24, 1971, Buenos Aires, Argentina. Dear Sir, As a long-time admirer, I consider it an honor to now be in a position to write to you. I regard you as among the foremost poets of the Americas and the most important cultural figure to emerge from our beloved nation this century. I very much enjoyed reading your latest collection of tales, Dr. Brody's report, and consider it a worthy successor to the maker, although I beg you not to leave your devoted public waiting as long for your next return to prose especially when your choice of subject matter is the colorful history and folklore of our beloved Argentina. I wish to tell you of something concerning myself. The pertinence is that, like so many of the stories to be found in your most recent work, it happens to involve a knife. And it's not only a knife to have belonged to a gaucho, a man I believe was a killer, but a knife imbued with a further, far subtler spirit of evil that I have established to my own satisfaction. Further to this detail, I draw no firm conclusion about the item and leave that to the wisdom of another that is your good self. I should start by telling you that I am, like yourself, a native Buenos Aires my family having long established links to the city as well as having built up a modest measure of civic prominence within our particular district. I flatter myself to think the esteemed Borges might have some slight recognition of my family name, though that identity is quite unimportant to the tale I am to tell. What I've said about myself applies equally to my oldest friend, a gentleman named Hector Claudio Ancorena, the pair of us have been like brothers ever since our boyhoods, fiercely loyal, fiercely envious, fiercely hating and forgiving of each other, but rarely out of love for long. My father and Hector's father were also childhood friends, and if anything, they did even better in maintaining their camaraderie into maturity. Therefore, it is in no way surprising such a kinship should have developed between us their only legitimate sons, Hector's family home, the Estancia Hermanos, at one time functioned as my second home, and such was my closeness to Hector, I labored for many years under the misapprehension that place is named derived from our almost fraternal bond. 
such as the egocentrism of the child. Even after I'd developed into a young man, such self-regard remained, I'm sorry to have to admit it, a major part of my character. Hector, never far from my side, surely matched me in this fault. Should you have leveled the accusation to us there and then, we could hardly have denied it. We'd have happily pled guilty to the charge of demonstrating an irresponsible solipsistic indulgence, in fact. Forty years ago, back when we were in our early twenties, Hector and I were a pair of reckless libertines, convinced we had Buenos Aires and, therefore, the entirety of the world spread out at our feet. We were trouble-free, amiable, and relaxed young men about town. And why should we have worried, given our family's wealth and status? This was the early thirties, of course, and I'm sure I have no need to remind you what those times were like for men of our class. At noon of the day my story begins, we'd gone to a small theatre that used to exist down a little avenue of the Plaza del Mayo to see a matinee performance of a play to have earned a certain renown, that of the disfavorable sort about town. In retrospect, the critics were right, for it was, looking back on it, a pretty cheap and dreary form of entertainment. A piece of Grand Guignol, clearly influenced by the less wholesome works of Prosper Merimée, Guy de Maupassant, and Maurice Lavelle. A venue and a style already deeply unfashionable. However, as Hector and I imagined ourselves decadence in the Gallic fashion, we thought it amusing to witness something so grisly and overblown in the middle of a bright summer's day, and thereafter, as had always been our intention, we repaired to one of our favorite bars to drink and discuss what we'd witnessed. There we spotted a friend of our father's already at the bar, presumably on his way back from entertaining his latest mistress, and this fellow was kind enough to stand us a few rounds of spirits while he waited for the scent of another woman's perfume to dissipate from his clothing before heading back home to brave out the consequences. While it had been generous, we'd already blown through our monthly allowance some days earlier, as I remember. Still heady with the excitement of the drama and wanting more in the way to drink, Hector and I made our way back to his estancia on our benefactor's leave-taking. There we would be provided for by Isabel, the family's mestizo cook, who was just as pandering of us as our own dear mother's. Should Isabel be absent, we knew we could always find more in the way of alcohol. Hector's father would forgive us for raiding his liquor cabinet as long as we didn't overdo it. Besides, my friend was seized by an idea, one apparently specific to that location. Do come back home with me, Hector implored, clutching at my arm. There's something I want to show you. He refused to explain further when I asked him to. This uncharacteristic reticence did much to intrigue me as to his plan. I was, as I've said, more than familiar with my friend's house, the Estancia Hermanos, having been a regular guest there since infancy. Even so, I'd seen only a few sporadic glimpses inside Don Leandro's, the long-standing friend of my father's, private study. This was where Hector now led me after putting into both of our hands a generous balloon of a senior's brandy. One taste of it confirmed the brandy's vintage. 
Naughty Hector, in his high spirits, he'd gone for the fine over the regular, just as I could have predicted he would. The fresh drink worked to counteract the sense of the taboo as we entered in through the study door. "'You must see this one. It's a family heirloom,' Hector enticed, approaching the small tea cabinet resting against one of the study's velvet-papered walls. More ornament than functional item, I thought. I watched Hector try to remember which drawer it was he wished to open, and in my own lightheadedness it amused me to see him so piqued with himself in his eagerness.' Having located the correct drawer, with a cry of satisfaction, he drew out the handle and began searching around inside the interior clutter. At last he removed something with a hitherto absent touch of caution. I assumed it was something of a letter-opener at first, given the furniture's proximity to the imperious desk, but soon realized from its size and my friend's smile of delight at not finding it relocated that it was, in fact, a genuine article. It was, Hector explained, one of his father's little treasures, a knife passed down from that man's own grandfather. Back in the bar he chanced to remember his sire telling him how the dagger was associated with the most curious phenomenon. I asked Hector exactly what this oddity was, to which he replied, I must find out for myself. I will say no more. You must grip the knife. At that stage of the proceedings, I no longer felt my friend's excitement being passed on to me. For a moment, I dreaded Hector meant for me to grasp onto the blade itself, although I really can't claim the weapon looked in any way intimidating, being a plain and time-dulled old relic, and as such, far from an instrument of danger. But he soon made himself clear. I was to replace his hand with my own around the knife's hilt. I thought I surmised the reason why he'd got the idea for this latest wheeze into his head, for a dagger much like it in the way of its thin staccato length had played a crucial role in the drama we'd sat through earlier. Hector's aim, I presumed, was for us to continue the theatrics. I did as I was told, and felt increasingly foolish as I gently and absently gripped the knife as though it were a stage prop, and I, a poor actor, stuck for my lines. Every time I went to speak, a stern glare from my friend dissuaded me. "'Just keep hold of it,' Hector whispered harshly through his teeth. I was unsure what he wanted me to think of the situation, but did suspect he required me to concentrate on what I was doing. Nevertheless, try as I might, I found my mind wandering. I suppose a revealing light must have come into my eye as my friend then whispered again, quietly so as not to disturb the train of my thoughts. So, Juan, what are you thinking of? I rambled in reply about this and that, telling Hector with a tinge of guilt he was not to think too badly of me. If I were to confess to him, I'd been picturing in my mind's eye the little blonde actress from the theater. His eyes went wide at hearing this. Ah, but my dear one, there wasn't a blonde actress in the play. A redhead, yes. Two brunettes, I agree. But there wasn't a blonde girl. Oh, well, I replied, vexed by his superior tone, then I suppose it must have been the girl seen over the bar, the owner Diaz's little niece. 
Ha! Hector laughed as though he was setting down a trump card. Think on, my friend. Like the unfortunate sisters in the play, Dora, Diaz's niece, is a brunette. When I considered this, I realized he was right. Who was it, then, that I'd been thinking of? So it was, my friend explained to me, the strange business concerning his great-grandfather's knife. Apparently no one was permitted to touch it while the old man lived, for he, Rufino Ancarena, was by all accounts a mean and covetous old devil. Something like this I'd already heard from my father, although I thought at best I didn't admit it. But after his death, when the knife at last fell into his children's hands, it was eventually recognized by many folk who held it, that it placed, as if from nowhere it seemed, a young woman's face into their minds. It was unclear exactly why this should be so, why such a vividly delineated image would be coupled to an instrument of such deadly intent as a knife. However, by the nature of the thing, the implication was clear enough. The face belonged to a victim of its one-time razor edge. With a swell of dynastic pride that even at the time I considered of questionable taste, Hector recounted how various family friends down the years had attested to seeing a thin-faced young lady, her short hair the lightest of blondes. Put against this fact, none of his own family members, including Hector, his father, his uncles, or his cousins, in addition to the knife's immediate inheritor, his grandfather, had ever been able to manifest for themselves this reputed vision, although not, as one might imagine, for the want of trying. Whether this phenomenon served to explain the mystery, or alternatively added to it, depended, of course, on one's point of view. Having recounted to you in turn this extraordinary history, you might well conclude it a uniquely sinister form of marvel. Indeed it is, and yet so gently and seemingly innocently had the beautiful female face come drifting into my mind, I'd not been surprised, let alone scared of it occurring. For one thing, that pleasing visage had been, I was sure, utterly bereft of hostility. For another, my thoughts in those days were filled with pretty girls. There seemed to me thousands of them packed into the busy streets of Buenos Aires, and I often thought back upon the faces, and I admit, the bodies of those delectable creatures to have passed me on the streets. Such is the state of being a young, red-blooded bachelor in so populous a city as ours. But now I'd heard what I'd heard, and I found myself reflectively troubled. Hector, excited by what he told me, bid me to pick up the knife again, but this time I resisted his direction. He said nothing of it, but it was clear from the way the item was returned so reluctantly to its drawer that he considered my refusal cowardly. I was just about content to leave him with this negative impression of me, and we soon after left the room. We became occupied by other affairs, and by the time I left the Estancia Hermanos that evening, it seemed the haunted dagger and the disagreeableness of Hector's subsequent sulk had been put forever behind us. It was some four months on from that first exposure I handled the knife a second time. Hector had been pressing me to do so every so often during the intervening period, 
But thus far I'd managed to laugh off, half spontaneously, half with disarming conceit, the suggestion. But now it happened we were drunk again, feeling fraternal and full of the boldness of our youth, and once again we found we had his family estancia to ourselves. On this occasion, Hector seemed sheepish about approaching his father's study. I deduced he'd been reprimanded of late for his casual disregard of certain boundaries, maybe even concerning this room at its door, for Hector's father was a progressive man and did not like to keep any locks on any part of his property. But I realized I'd neglected to ask my friend whether he told his senior about exposing me to what a cheap magazine of sensation stories might have declared the mystery of the knife. When I asked Hector if he'd admitted our experiment to his father, Don Leandro, he told me he hadn't. I wasn't sure I believed him even then. This time I took the dagger up when it was handed to me with a good deal more in the way of trepidation. As everyone knows, it's quite impossible to stop oneself from thinking of a particular thing when one has told oneself not to. This is to say that when a vision of a woman's face began forming once more inside my head, I told myself I was merely bringing those features back into presence. I could easily have accepted this as true had it not been for the fact that the image in my mind's eye was clearly more defined than any memory so rapidly gained and lost had any right to be. She was as I remembered her, yet now, if I may be permitted to say it, even more so. If, as was reputed, the image of the face I had access to was indeed barred from him and his entire line, Hector nevertheless read well what it was I was seeing. He could tell by my expression I was picturing what I'd been exposed to previously, and what's more, he closed his hand around that one of mine to hold the knife before I could shake it off from me. I instantly resented him for so aggressive an intervention, that edge of my friend I'd never quite become reconciled to, having risen again to the fore. But the longer he held my hand firmly on to the hilt, the more I came to terms with what I was witnessing. Once it arrived, the lady's face never altered, and this static quality gave the impression I was looking on, as opposed to remembering back, should that make sense. I agree it sounds paradoxical to so strongly associate an utter lack of animation with the current and enveloping moment as I did, as opposed to relegating it to the category of the past, but there you have it. Certain qualities may transcend even time's boundaries. As previously, the woman's expression was perfectly pleasant and serene. Very far from showing signs of being in imminent danger of being stabbed or slashed with the instrument, which in some fathomless manner was connecting her to myself. No, there was no ambiguity about it. If there was even a hint of disturbance in the lady's smile, then I'm sure I would have knocked my friend away from me and cast that uncanny length of metal far across the room. But the truth is, there was absolutely nothing to suggest the woman I saw might consider herself imperiled. Yes, she was staring directly at me, but her gaze seemed to pass straight through as if it were I who was the ghost.
Over the minutes I acclimatized myself completely to the vision, and before long could no longer be sure whether the face had stolen into my head unbidden, or else I had assembled it out of nowhere on a whim. I could not conceive of the latter being the case, however, as I have never considered myself blessed with any degree of creativity. Every figure, every object had ever drawn to achieve a modicum of verisimilitude, always having to be made from scrupulous life-studies. As I stood there focusing on what must surely have appeared to have been thin air, I endeavored to communicate something of the above to my friend. In reply, Hector latched on to my mention of art and came to insist I sketch out the woman's face for his benefit. I've always possessed a fair amount of artistic, or rather reproductive, talent, as Hector was well aware. The various copies I'd made of horses and riders, of soldiers and priests, the one-time envy of our childhood circle. As for the necessary implements, pencils, paper, a whittling knife, a lump of rubber, these happened to be conveniently at hand on one of his father's side tables, and having identified them, he promptly brought them over. Too conveniently at hand, I thought to myself, too promptly brought over. I understood then how it had always been Hector's plan that day for me to set down the woman's face for him on paper. Hurt at the deception as I was, I agreed to try it with but a minor grumble of complaint. I admit uh, I would have sounded a touch ridiculous to myself if I had offered any appeal to propriety. I don't believe I said anything, as I should rightly have done, I see now, regarding the inherent dangers of goading the supernatural, but the objection certainly existed in my mind. I regret to this day ignoring that pricking of my conscience. I composed sitting down, the pencil held in my right hand while my left gripped the handle of the knife. If I were penning here a melodrama and not a true account of my experiences, I'd probably tell you I sketched quickly and automatically so as to suggest I was in some manner possessed. This wasn't the situation, and at no point did I ever feel myself taken over. Instead, it was with many a false start and with countless acts of erasure that I was able to transfer what was seen in my head onto the sheet in front of me. I worked for close to an hour, possibly two, Hector saying not a word but hovering ever by my side, enthralled as the likeness gradually came into existence, seeming not to know or to care that the birth of the portrait was a difficult and exhausting process. Even when I was done, I wasn't completely satisfied. I caught the mysterious lady's true likeness, but did leave off content to have grasped something near to it. We had lunch and sobered a little. On the cusp of my exit, I decided to stay on an extra half hour or so to finesse my sketch, more to exercise my awakened artistic urge than my ghostly subject, or so it felt. This time I became more easily absorbed in my work, and clutching ever more tightly to the knife's handle was, to my immense satisfaction, able to capture the elusive light of reality and what I'd previously set down. I quite forgot how I was drawing from a place I'd concluded as being quite separate from the wells of either imagination or memory. 
Only when it became next to impossible to distinguish between what I was seeing with my eyes open and what I was seeing with my eyes closed did the previous weight of my fear return to bear down on me. I was glad to leave my sketch of what we'd come to call the Lady of the Knife in Hector's Charge, although I was convinced it ranked as the greatest of my illustrative achievements. I told him I thought it best if he keep the drawing and the knowledge of it to himself. Having been so good as to furnish him with a record of the ghostly face, Hector seemed finally content to let the matter drop. Certainly it no longer came up in his conversation. It was a good year and a half later that my attention was drawn back to what I'd done. My friend played no part in this, I should say, at least not a direct one. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'd met for dinner with my father that evening, and we'd fallen into an unexpectedly pleasant conversation. He was living away from the family home with his mistress at the time, and I'd not been seeing much of him. Yet, strange to say, our divorce from each other's regular company had allowed us to repair certain emotional rifts which had developed between us. It was an excellent restaurant and newly opened, rather quiet and unfussy for an establishment situated so close to the Plaza San Martin, father always had a good nose for a place that was on the up yet happened to remain thus far undiscovered we'd just commenced our desserts when he casually remarked how he'd visited hector's father the preceding week in order to discuss the race course they jointly owned it was doing rather well from what i could gather while there he'd been shown something i'd done when i was at the estancia hermanos Putting a large spoonful of pudding into my mouth enabled me to feign nonchalance at this unexpected disclosure. 
I wondered if my father was angry with me. In his inimitable manner of proceeding both cryptically and at the same time matter-of-factly, my father informed me he'd been shown my drawing of the so-called Lady of the Knife. It appears Hector, against my own preference and advice, had made Don Leandro, his own sire, cognizant of it. Without adding any noticeable warmth to the praise, my father congratulated me on my competence with a pencil. The image I produced looked to him a faithful representation of what he himself had seen during several youthful occasions of his own experimentation, the last of which, he surmised, must have been conducted a year or so prior to my birth. When he'd been pressured into confiding as much to Don Leandro, who, setting the template for our generation's efforts, no doubt, had browbeaten my youthful father into the aforementioned experimentations, the other was not only gratified to have collected this additional evidence, but had responded with the suggestion his guest touched Don Rufino's blade anew, the better to confirm it. Wiping away at his cream-flecked mustache, my father informed me he'd demurred at this invitation. Indeed, he described how he'd been adamantine in the strength of his refusal. My father then explained, or rather dryly stated, how he'd left the Estancia Hermanos prematurely that night, vowing both to his friend and to himself never to pick up the accursed item again. Further to this, he recommended that my sketch, if his host possessed any wisdom, be destroyed. This last detail he added bluntly. We said no more about the matter, or rather... Father felt there was nothing left to say about it. What else is there, he told me with a dismissive shirk of his shoulders, to be discussed? If the situation was that the knife originally belonging to Rufino and Corena revealed to people outside its inheritor's line the indistinct image of a young woman's face, then if any part of the phenomenon made any sense, it was that this face belonged to a specific individual, be she a real soul to exist or to have existed, or else to have been evoked into being, and everyone to come after us would either be compelled to see the exact same spirit, or else they would not. If she did not want to be seen, did anyone have the right to bear witness to her? And if it so happened she did want to be seen, then why did I think this should be? The question, such as it was, he seemed perfectly content to leave hanging. At the time, I thought it a strange and accusatory remark to issue at the end of so amiable a dinner, but I recognized the deliberate, low-key manner of my father's utterances well enough to understand that I was to consider myself reprimanded. Following that oblique conversation with my father, many, many years went past. He and Don Leandro passed away, God rest their souls. The process hastened, no doubt, by years of good living, matched with a steely ambition for business and material gain on both their parts. And Hector and myself dutifully moved, as was always our designated fate, into the roles vacated by those exemplars. We became what once we would have hated— "'serious and responsible men of influence and gravitas. "'We married well as befitting our status and respectability. "'In turn, he went on to become the doting father to three sons, "'myself becoming father to an equal number of daughters. 
Obviously, I am skimming over a vast deal unconnected to my tale, abridging for you both our biographies, near to identical as these have proven to be, but it is sufficient to say that it has been close to forty years since I last gave thought, serious thought, to my friend's family heirloom, the haunted knife of Rufino Ancarena. All that changed a month ago when I received over the telephone an invitation from Hector to dine with him at the family home, the Estancia Hermanos. I understood I was to come alone. We had not seen each other in a number of years, Hector and I, the last occasion being the soiree held after the christening of his second but last grandson. The fact is, our wives did not draw as close as we'd hoped, although they offered no resistance to tolerating the other socially as long as we were accommodating enough as spouses to limit their interactions to the brief and sporadic, where once we had expressed to each other the wish that there might be a love match made between our children, I think Hector and I were equally relieved when it became obvious such a romance was not going to be in the cards. The antipathy between his sons and my daughters proving almost as bad as what existed between their respective mothers. But it is quite disingenuous of me to present here an image of two old friends drifting apart due to the loyalty invested in their respective families. Hector and I must bear our share of the blame, if there is any blame to be apportioned. While we never ceased to consider ourselves friends, we became less and less willing over the years to associate with the other, as some might naively suppose our history properly deserved. Even the love of actual brothers has been known to cool off. That evening we met at the iron gates of the Estancia Hermanos with genuine smiles on our faces at receiving a fresh sight of the other, two old men rapidly approaching their seventies, sensing the waste of letting the time we might have mutually enjoyed slide past us so complacently, so unprotestingly, albeit, I think, while both privately acknowledging this peak of feeling to be but a temporary imposition, an illusion conjured by the warm familiarity of the moment. At the table, I was grateful to discover that not only was Hector's rather overcritical wife not present, as he'd assured me during our telephone conversation she'd not be, for she was visiting her sister in Lima, but that his exemplary cook had prepared for our consumption two huge prime pieces of beefsteak. The meat was complemented by a bottle of Malbec so rich and full-bodied, I joked I was half inclined to put my knife and fork to it also. During our meal, we caught up on what might fairly be considered an embarrassing amount of each other's family news. But if there was a shade of regret lingering in the air to surround us at the time squandered, there were no recriminations, no new resolves. Afterwards, to my surprise, Hector rose from his seat with a familiar gleam in his eye and bid me to follow him into his study without offering additional comment. Maybe I should have asked him to explain what it was that he wanted of me there, but I knew it was much too late to raise the challenge to his dominance of our partnership. As both of us could have predicted, I fell into sympathy behind him, my slowed, rheumatic gait, the wordless echo of his own. 
The study was, of course, the same room used for the same purpose by the late Don Leandro. Little within it had altered, I noted. I'm not sure that recognition pleased me. Inside, Hector did not proceed, as had been my worry, over to the small tea cabinet that still rested against the wall. The cabinet, I assume, continued to harbor his ancestor's dreadful and evocative dagger. Instead, he went to pick up a thin, grayish slate from a doily on a side table. This he returned to show me. Up close, I recognized he was holding a primitive photograph of sorts. Hector explained how he'd discovered the plate a fortnight ago in a corner of the Estancia's attic, a long-standing all-purpose depository of the family's excreta, as I knew. Somehow the photograph had been overlooked in previous searches mounted for salvageable material. It was, Hector declared with a touch of his customary pomp, a wee domestic miracle the poor neglected thing hadn't cracked, never mind been shattered while it lay up there under the eaves. The photograph dated, he said, back to the previous century, to the era of his great-grandfather, the infamous and much speculated upon Don Rufino. When Hector uttered that name, I knew of a sudden what it was he'd a mind to expose me to. I'd seen a couple of pictures of Hector's grandparents and even a few of his great-grandparents before, if long ago. My friend closely resembled his father, especially now that he'd reached and exceeded the age at which I'd first encountered his sire. And from what I've been able to judge of it, both he and Don Leandro were in turn incredibly like his grandfather and his great-grandfather in appearance. Such a strong and bullish set of features clearly not much diluted by the interference of the matrilineal lines. It goes without saying that in its earliest stages, commercial photography was an extremely costly production. Hector's family is, as you might have gathered, a proud one. This quality bequeathed down the generations along with the facial features, and it is easy to imagine the original scion, Rufino and Corena, self-made man that he evidently was, taking much satisfaction in the number of photographic records he was able to afford to collect of himself and those dear to him. What Hector transferred carefully over to my hands was a keepsake of this kind. Perhaps with its identification it now constituted the very earliest in the family's store. For its age, the photograph possessed an exceeding clarity, the optimum quality of light on the day assuredly playing a significant part in the chemical magic alongside the relaxed patience of the standing subjects. I suspected a long period of exposure would have been necessary to successfully capture so clean an image back then. The setting was presumably some favorite spot of the great house's original garden, now long since diminished in its range, although I didn't recognize enough to confirm this, and Hector himself admitted to being unsure. If taken on the grounds of the Estancia Hermanos, nothing of the house was visible. Whatever the location, the party stood arranged before a large crested gallo heaving with blossom, a bedding of Gerbera and Carnation close against their heels, though without the benefit of color it was impossible for me as a layman to completely sure of the floral backdrop. Everyone assembled for the photograph, six men and four women, I counted. There were no children present. 
had applied their best smiles for the camera, which I suppose must have been quite an anachronistic manner of behavior to adapt, given the era. Rufino Ancarena, the old gaucho turned incredibly fortunate speculator, turned industrialist, predictably reared up front and center, the same arrogant look of amused scorn playing to the sides of his mouth as I'd seen sported by him in other portraits. At least here, given the bucolic setting, that air he radiated of satisfied cattle wrangler newly stripped of his poncho and fresh off the pampas appeared somewhat appropriate. As you may guess, I'd no idea who the majority of the people in the photograph were, and doubted even Hector would be able to tell me half of them. One of the women I did recognize, however, a thin, strikingly pretty young woman with shoulder-length blonde hair situated to one side of the grinning patriarch, her slim arm linked through that of my friend's great-grandmother. A jolt ran through me when my eyes fell upon that particular face. I knew her, yes. Undoubtedly I'd seen her before, only not in any of the family photographs Hector or his parents had previously shown to me. It was not that this figure had, to be perfectly clear about it, the exact same face as my sketching, for it was here turned a degree off to the side, just missing out on receiving the full force of the exposure, but the likeness was enough to confirm her as the so-called lady of the knife. We both fell silent studying the photograph, that fragile sepia-tinted window into the past, a past irrecoverable, a past beyond interrogation. At last Hector spoke. Your silence confirms it, Juan. It's as I thought. It is she. He then told me there were names as well as a date committed to the back of the image. Turning the plate gently over, I confirmed this was so. The responsible hand, Hector renounced with conviction, was Don Elvira's, his great-grandmother's. The stated year was 1872, and the name of the mysterious female figure, set down in ink more gone than lingering, as was true with the rest, was Elodie. So we'd been granted a name. Such a little addition to the wider mystery. Even then it posed further questions, I thought. To start, the name sounded French, and not one likely to be given to the daughter of Criolos. So what was her heritage? How did she come to be here in Argentina? And should the lack of a surname on the back of the photograph be taken as an indication this Elodie was little cared for? Was she simply not known enough to the family? Or could the opposite be true? And this absence of surname meant the Ancarinas were especially fond of her, and she'd been fully taken into their hearts somewhat, like a pet, maybe. And why had my friend been so certain his great-grandmother was responsible for setting that single name down? Returning the plate to its place on the table, Hector provided an answer to the last of my unspoken questions, disclosed how the esteemed Dona Elvira had been a lifelong diarist. She'd left several volumes of her daily thoughts and musings in different-sized notebooks behind for posterity. Yet one entire volume, comprising the majority of the year 1872, was nowhere present in the archive. 
My friend informed me that he'd read through these journals in his youth. He did not prefer a reason as to why he, who had always averred books to be tedious, would elect to do so, but I could draw my own conclusion as to the interest. And he'd returned to them more recently, following his discovery of the old photograph. This was how he was able to recognize Dona Elvira's particular script against the back of it. Apparently, late in November, in the last notebook before the interruption to the sequence, a good deal is made of the family taking on a nanny. This was subsequent to the birth of the couple's second child, a boy, Hector's own grandfather. Judging by the flowering state of the garden and the heavy exposure of the plate, the photograph was taken in the middle, if not toward the end of the lost period of the record. The nanny's name is mentioned in the preceding journal as being Elodie. She receives full-sum praise from Dona Elvira for the attention paid to her duties and for the tender rapport she quickly establishes with the infant. She clearly likes the nanny very much. Reading between the lines, Hector suggested with the requisite subtlety to communicate the point sufficiently to me. It is clear that Dona Elvira was cognizant of her husband, Don Rufino, being every bit as pleased as herself with this new hiring, if for his own reasons. Those aren't her own words, but they come close enough. She's indelicate enough elsewhere to communicate to the careful reader what breed of man her husband was for all her obfuscation. It's like she can't quite prevent herself from committing the truth. And then comes the gap, Hector stated with a long exhalation which, whether consciously or not, I thought served to mimic the record caesura of time. There is no mention of a nanny in any of the surviving notebooks, nor of there ever being such an individual attached to the family, he continued when he caught his breath. When you read through the rest of the journals, though, and the absence comes over as, let us say, willful. The mystery of Elodie's fate was destined to continue, it seemed. The dark implication, however, that connection to exist between man, woman, and object to have been there from the start had certainly been strengthened for us both. I do not believe the photograph was relegated to the attic due to an accidental mishap. Hector started up with a steady deliberation, although his tone sounded to me very much like that of a man still weighing up a subject. I'm inclined to think my great-grandmother was the one to put it up there, or more likely had someone else put it there, on her say-so. That she could not bring herself to scrub every last trace of poor Elodie out from the house, whatever the circumstances connected to her disappearance might happen to be, however much she might have wanted to. It's as I said, Dona Elvira could never quite bring herself to tell an outright lie. What say you? I could only shrug. When this response clearly failed to satisfy Hector, I told him I didn't know, that I thought that we'd never know, although from what he told me it sounded as if his relation were she in fact, as he'd chosen to think, responsible for arranging for the photograph's safekeeping, had lied a great deal, and then some, about a great many number of things. You know what I mean, Juan, he chided testily. 
I did, but it didn't alter my opinion that we'd never resolve this lesser disappearance Hector now seemed caught up with, that of the plate. Whether this visual record of Elodie, together with the ghastly rest, had been preserved for a century either purposefully or through an act of blind oversight, whether it had been set in its nook as tender tribute to a lost friend who couldn't be saved or exiled there in either guilt and self-recrimination or else aversion and disgust. Even providing for the best of scenarios, it struck me that a lot more was to be done. We removed ourselves to the lounge. Hector poured us both a drink, and we sat there in silent contemplation, nursing the contents of our glasses as well as our thoughts. The brandy we'd once sipped in that same room, ironically, as posture, as affectation of older and of better men, we were now enjoying with a bittersweet sincerity. My feelings, I know, were unusually troubled. Hector, too, was pensive, though I'd no curiosity to spare engaging what was revolving in the confines of his own mind. He was the first to break the silence woven between and around us. It is late, and you must shortly go, old friend. I'm sorry I had to share this new revelation with you, and yet I had to confirm my suspicions. Elodie, my father's nursemaid, she is the lady of the knife, isn't she? It struck me then that thus far I'd not actually said anything beyond my passing look and the way of confirmation. I don't suppose it was strictly necessary that I had to, given the woman in the photograph's striking correspondence to the sketch I'd made years earlier. Still, I sent an unequivocal nod Hector's way. After a wistful pause, he continued, Before you do leave, Juan, might I ask you to take hold of the knife a further time, to see if, on this occasion, you can learn anything else about the girl through your contact with it? I bristled at the request, so much more at the sly manner with which he unfurled it. He could not have forgotten my vow, no matter how many number of years had passed since I made it. No, I told him, no, I could not. When he began to suggest I at least take a fresh look at the sketch I'd made of the Lady of the Knife, I rose and sought my way quickly out of the Estancia Hermanos and into the night, saying no more, suppressing a curse, if truth be told. he just confirmed, you see, the worst of my suspicions, that the calculating fellow had sequestered in advance a damnable portrait somewhere to hand, the one he'd extracted so unwilling from me so many years earlier, and was intent on setting my eyes upon it anew, and I simply could not let that happen. I haven't returned to the Estancia Hermanos, and as of this time of writing, I haven't seen Hector since. We're both old men, of course, and with age comes the increasing proximity to death. I dare say we'll meet up before the end arrives on mutual ground acceptable to both, and then shall be glad to spend a portion of what's left of our time together. But I know as absolute certainty I will never again touch that hideous device. I said nothing of this to Hector, for the state of my true feelings had been most alarming. 
He might think the situation is clear enough, but if so, he is wrong. The fact is that as I gazed down at the flat image of the beautiful woman named Elodie, captured forever in time in a way that I, even in this age of video camera and microphone, shall never be, captured smiling and at ease in the garden beside the man I do not doubt went on to rape and to murder her, an unshakable impulse crept over me. It was that type of impulse one revolts from instinctively, for one knows to one's core must not in any measure be entertained. It was the urge to seek retribution on the poor woman's behalf. I would say that what I felt was an inexplicable urge, but that would mean for me to practice self-deceit. I know full well from whence, or rather from whom, it originated. I've no doubt at all that had I been foolish enough to permit that knife to be put once more into my hand, I'd have experienced absolutely no hesitation in slitting Hector's throat through with it on the spot. What's more, had I allowed myself to look again on the portrait I'd made, I would have in all probability have been compelled to ransack the study, for I knew it was there, in order to find Don Rufino's dagger and put it to use. Even that, I acknowledge, had become, with but one look at the photograph, contaminated by association. This morning I asked my grandson, Umberto, if his playmate Ricardo, Hector's grandson, had shown him the knife. As closest to him in age, I deduced Ricardo to be the likeliest of instigators. He flushed with guilt and answered that Ricardo had done so. I asked him what had happened when he was asked to clutch at the handle, and he explained to me everything. It was all as I'd experienced that first time when I was little older than Umberto is now, the same, of course, as my own father had in his own day experienced, the picture forming in the mind of the face of a strange and beguiling young woman. Given the fortuitous mismatch between Hector's sons and my daughters, both groups alternatively shy and then suspicious of their counterparts, I never had to worry about any experimentations, as Hector and I had termed them, being conducted behind closed doors by curious members of that particular generation. Now, however, what with our grandchildren proving so much the closer? I told Umberto sternly he was never to touch that ancient knife belonging to the Ancarenas again, on pain of being disowned from his family. Predictably enough, the boy ran off in tears, and I'm certain a retaliatory reprimand is shortly to arrive courtesy of his mother, my eldest daughter, when I'm positive I fully deserve for my uncharacteristic outburst of temper and cruelty. Yet the truth is, I dread to think what Umberto might go on to do to poor innocent Ricardo and Carena if he goes back to that house and his behavior is left unchecked. Due to Ricardo, to Rodrigo, to Augustina, to Dorothea, to Anna Carlina, to little Enriqueta, what he'll do to any member of the Ancarina family when it comes down to it. You see, to the best I can make of it, a pattern has been established. A pattern has been established and something from the past, something from beyond the wall of death itself, is seeking to exploit this twining of our two families in order to achieve its end. 
I lack the faintest notion as to whether I should regard this thing I've identified as LOD in spirit, as LOD transformed, or as a power or influence to function on LOD's behalf, or to be otherwise acting in her name. But whatever it is, and however it may happen to regard itself, I do know this that the thought of it terrifies me in its tireless ambition, in its quenchless drive toward balancing the scales of a base and primal justice. And worst of all is the knowing that it lurks there, ready in the weapon, forever waiting, forever within reach, ever but a hand's breadth away. I dare say the rationalist would deem me perfectly insane, would declare I've more cause to fear a loaded shotgun left out unlocked and unattended than the threat presented by an old gaucho's blade. Certainly a revolver is an even more logical subject of concern, and an atomic bomb and the prospect of its dropping even more so. To this, all I can say is that I know what I felt in my heart when I saw the proof of the entity there in the photographic plate. Proof to my picture— proof to the image transferred to my head so many decades earlier. I think the murderous urge almost overtaking me when last I visited the Estancia Hermanos was put into me even then, that it has been slowly growing within like an unseen seed of lethal portent ever since I first touched on Rufino's terrible knife. It's just that I was unable to recognize his presence until the day I found myself standing there with whatever exists inside me on the very brink of eruption. And although I feel what I feel, I do not understand it. And like all men, I fear what I do not understand. Yet I've learned enough of this world to see its color and to call it out as evil. Still, I can at least console myself with the knowledge that I have at long last developed the wisdom of my father. That was Greg Sturman's The Lady of the Knife, as read by Martin Rato. Martin Rato is an educator, writer, and musician. He has worked in an eclectic variety of fields, including 18 years as a technical writer and software developer, 16 years as a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication, and shorter stints as a symphony musician and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast. Our show was produced by our editor Scott Silk and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website www.com districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.